With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome once again to Free on the Inside. I'm your host, Minister Joy Lewis, and we're dedicating this show here to uh, Black History Month, February, Black History Month. We're going to listen to something from Stevie Wonder. Tell us about Black History.
celebrating and honoring uh, February as Black History Month, so we want to play a couple of archives about Black History, and I love it, I love it, I love it, because it wasn't for me. It wasn't for who somebody, what somebody does for me that I wouldn't be who I am today. And uh, we are listening, uh, we are uh, very pleased to be on on the air with you this morning, uh, free on the inside ministry there. Uh, your host, Minister Joel Lewis, and our co-host is on the line there, Brother Daniels, and we're going to bring Brother Daniel in here, and we're just going to talk to him for a few minutes. And, again, the calling number is 310-982-4126. Good morning, Brother Daniel. You're on the net. How you doing, Jay Lewis? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We're going to set this show aside here uh, and dedicate this show to Black History Month, February Black History Month. So we have a couple of our archives or programs that we're going to play, uh, or some pre-recorded shows that we're going to play regarding black history. One of them is Charles Drew, was a uh, pioneer of the blood bank of blood preservation. And so it's very important for us to know about these unsung heroes here, to just bring back our remembrance, man. I, I recall, and you can piggyback off this too, you know, the people that I met, uh, met during my uh, uh, development years when I was a young man. And, you know, uh, I remember my mother used to love to show MacGyver. MacGyver could take anything and create something. And I knew black men in the neighborhood that when my little bike broke down, they always seemed to have the right uh, uh, parts I needed, knew how to fix stuff. And when my car wasn't wasn't running right, they knew how to fix things. And I love that right there because, you know, we as a race of people are very creative. Amen, amen. Basically, that's the basis. That's the whole uh, secret and or issue about uh, black inventors. Uh, the main thing is most of the people that work with them while we were in slavery, we had the ability to uh, to uh, live with our experiences and use what we did our uh, hardships in order to create new things to do the work with, you know, and at the same time, we didn't have a vehicle or either money to uh, use these uh, inventions that we had to get patterns pattern on, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. The main thing about being an inventor, you have to go out and get a, a U.S. and United States patent office and you had to register your name behind these inventions. So what happened was, uh, I, I'll give you a uh, main example. I think it was the cotton gin. They said that uh, Eli Whitten invented the cotton gin, but in reality it was a black man that uh, uh, was in the fields, and he got, basically he got tired of picking this cotton and, you know, having his hands ripped to swears, bloody. And so he figured out a way, and he got some machines, and he got some levels, and he uh, he figured out a way how to have this cotton stripped from the, you know, the seeds, the, the fibers. But at the same time, you know, it came, this came this, uh, this white guy or whoever, Say, oh, well, you don't need that, son. Well, I ain't about to use all the word what he said, you know. But anyway, he came to him and said, you don't need that. Let me have it. And probably at the same time, he probably made him a promise. Real, I'm a, I'm a, I'll write you up. I'll him at the same time. He didn't do it. And yeah, and, and, and I know what you mean. Sometimes they tell us, and plus we don't have the money to. Uh, you you know, to bring that, that idea to tuition, no more than just our little garage, our little workshop, and someone comes over and say, hey, I'm willing to invest in the, in the I do all the paperwork and necessarily get the patent and cut you in on it, and you realize that you only get a, a, a little, just a little bit of maybe something that that you didn't invent. It. You may not even get anything, and I know what you're saying. Now, sometimes they think that your idea just doesn't work out. And then before you know it, so they use your idea, they done change it a little bit. They said, now it's really my idea. See, yours was black, mine is white. <laughs> you know, so, so that's the idea of that idea. Yeah. But I thank I God for the creativity of his people and our culture and the surrounding nations, man. But black people, man, we had a very special gift, you know, because when we were in slavery, uh, we didn't get the, uh, we couldn't get the, the food 
the proper food uh, that other people eat uh, concerning the animals. So they gave us some of the things that they didn't want, like the pig feet and the intestines and the ears. And we learned to be able to cook those things and raise our families on those things, and, you know. And, and so, you know, right today, that's one of our uh, that's one of our uh, 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 meals, you know, during the holidays, you know, where we cook the pig feet and the chitlins and things of that nature. You know, uh, we get away from it as a race of people, but at one time, that's what we, you know, we had those things on a regular basis in the wintertime because that was part of our culture because that was was what was given to us, the leftovers. They said, well, I don't know what to do Mm. with these these feets. You know, we figured out to cook them, to fry them, you know, and and eat them and make them make them tasty. Yeah, tasty, tasty. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know a lot of things. You know, I, I can I can go back basically. I can go back to you know, a lot of memories when uh, my grandmother would cook these chitlins in the living room. Man, sometimes in in the kitchen, I'll be in the living room, and then all of a sudden I I smell. My like, God, what is that smell? She well, I said, well, you you don't have to eat them. I said, well, I'm not gonna eat them. <laughs> I, I didn't do it. Yeah, I didn't do it. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle them. Some people say they were very good, but I, I just don't know. <laughs> I never, I just didn't want to go that far with it, you know. But yeah, uh, I tell you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I tell you one thing. I, I ate some when I was younger because I didn't know any better. When I grew up and learned better, I learned how to eat them, man. Yeah. Because you know, it's a, it's an acquired taste, you know. <laughs> you have yeah. to learn to, yeah. to like stuff like that. So I understand what you're saying, man. But just think about. The uh, the deal that our uh, uh, four parents were able to do with the little bit that they had, man, they were being very creative. That's why I love it. You know, when Stevie wanted to talk about, uh, you know, singing, uh, you know, black history and, you know, all the things that we just don't even, not even aware of, man, like the stoplight and, the, and you know, and the uh, brakes for a train system, you know, things of that nature. And they were, okay, you know, had right. a hand in electricity and, 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 been, and helping with the cars and, Nuclear scientists, and I got a, 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 a documentary coming up here of Charles Drew. You know, he did the uh, first uh, blood uh, preservation and started the Red Cross for the blood bank and things of that nature. It was a black man. Yeah, they, had, they had a man named Benjamin Ballinger. He uh, yeah. designed uh, uh, the, the capital of the United States, the blueprints inside his head because they lost the the main blueprints, and he remember all the mathematical uh, figures inside his head, you know. Oh, man, so, that's man, awesome. Man. You know, he had to be an awesome man to do something like that, you know. I know. At but, one time, uh, you you, know, you had poems concerning Black history. You got any, you have any poems in your archive, the poetry that you can uh, share with us after the after this documentary of Drew. Uh, Charles Drew. We're going to do something on Charles Drew. And then I'm going to come back, which is only about five, six minutes. Okay. All right. Can I do that? All right. Yeah. All right. Great. We're going to listen to a document on Charles Drew. He, uh, the pioneer of a blood uh, blood bank, and you'll hear his story, and you'll be encouraged. So when we talk about going to the blood bank, it's a black man that started out that many years ago. So we're here to honor uh, our black patriots and black inventors and musicians and the people that went before us to make things the way they are today. You're listening to Free on the Inside, Minister Lewis and Brother Richard Daniel. Charles Drew Documentary, his three-day project by Samantha Burke, Trinity Corcoran, and Mallory Mantone. Charles Drew, an African-American surgeon who not only pioneered methods of containing blood plasma for transfusion, but also established the first large-scale blood bank in the USA. Charles was born in Washington, D.C. on June 3, 1904. He grew up with his mom and dad, Nora and Richard Drew, and his four younger siblings, Joseph, Elsie, Nora, and Eva. Though his childhood goal was to become a mechanic, it quickly changed when his younger sister, Elsie, was diagnosed with tuberculosis and later died. Her death inspired him to become a doctor since he was determined to find a way to stop people from dying of diseases. 
Charles went to Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C., and after he graduated, he received a sports scholarship to Amherst College. After he graduated with his bachelor's degree, he didn't have enough money to go to medical school, so he became a coach at Morgan College. He later enlisted in McGill University in 1928 and soon became top student. After he graduated in 1933, he became an intern at both the Montreal General Hospital and the Royal Victoria Hospital. And while he was doing this, he worked with Dr. John Beattie. They observed issues, problems concerning blood transfusions. In 1938, Charles Drew continued his exploration of blood-related matters. Charles Drew developed a way to preserve and process blood plasma, or blood without cells. After this discovery, Charles Drew realized that plasma lasts much longer than whole blood. This made it possible for blood to be stored or banked for longer periods of time. With much research, Charles Drew found that the blood could be dried and revised as needed. Charles Drew's findings of storing blood and preserving it for longer periods of time influenced a special medical effort, Blood for Britain, to reach out to him for World War II. Charles Drew organized the processing and collecting of blood plasma from numerous New York hospitals. These were shipped out to treat casualties at war, saving many lives. Drew helped collect roughly 14,500 pints of plasma. Charles helped the American Red Cross during another blood banking effort in 1941. He also developed a bank for the U.S. military personnel. Drew soon became frustrated for the military's request to segregate the blood that was donated by African Americans. The military compromised their first request of not wanting to use the blood of African Americans to using it for African American soldiers only. Charles still thought this was an unfair event, so quit after a few months because he couldn't be fired due to his tenure. Sadly, on April 1, 1950, Charles Drew died. While driving home from a medical conference along with three other physicians, his car crashed. Though the other passengers survived, Charles Drew suffered from his injuries because the nearest black hospital was across town from where they were. They brought him to a white hospital even though he was severely injured. They put him in their waiting room where he bled to death. At the time of his death, Charles Drew was only 45 years old. He left behind his wife, Minnie, and his four children, Bibi, Charlene, Sylvia, and Charles Drew Jr. Though he only lived a short life, he still accomplished much. Like Jerry Moore said at his funeral, a life which crowds into a handful of years of significance so great, men will never be able to forget it. Charles Drew made several contributions to the world, not only during his lifetime, but even to this very day. During his lifetime, he received numerous awards for his blood plasma collection and distribution efforts. Before his death, Drew remained an active and successful medical professional. Charles Drew was the first physician to develop ways to store blood plasma in blood banks, which was a major discovery for its time. This influenced many lives due to the fact that a myriad of people need blood transfusions every day. After his life, Charles Drew still managed to make contributions to the world. For example, Drew received multiple honors for his development. In 1981, Charles Drew was featured in the United States Postal Service's Credit American Stamp Series. Another contribution Charles Drew made was that his name appears on educational institutions across the country. Clearly, Charles Drew has made a drastic impact on not only the medical world, but also on many people's lives and society. This topic relates to all three themes of exploration, encounter, and exchange in history. The topic relates to the theme of exploration because Charles Drew explored the world of medicine and blood transfusion by creating blood banks. It also relates to encounter because when he was younger, he encountered the disease tuberculosis, and as he grew older, he encountered many different ways to transfuse blood. This also relates to exchange because he further developed blood transfusion, which he exchanged with the world.
Oh, that, what a great little documentary that we had on Charles Drew there, a, a pioneer. Brother Daniel says, off the line there, but we'll, he'll be back here shortly. We pray that you enjoyed that, that episode of our Black History uh, uh, presentation there. And, you know, I'm always fascinated as I hear these here. You know, no matter how often I listen to our, our black inventors and pioneers, I'm always blown away and always uh, pleased with what I hear regarding them. And it allows me to go a little further in what I do. You know, they said that, that Charles Drew, Dr. Charles Drew, he saw a need, and he uh, set about correcting that need. He had some challenges, but those challenges didn't stop him for uh, for, uh, for meeting those needs. He was denied. He was denied the very thing that he invented, a blood transfusion upon his accident and and, and suddenly his, his death. But yet his, his legacy lived on. He was still able to. Uh, accomplish the will and the purpose that God has set for him. And I, you know what? I got to thinking, even though sometimes I may set out to do something and it may not seem to be successful, but maybe yet it is successful. Because God gets the glory. Maybe I attempt to do something different. And I see it that it just don't seem to be working out in my favor at that time. But yet maybe it is working out. Because God gets the glory. You know, you hear me from time to time say, help change a life. You know, and people say, wow, man, you can't, you know, what you mean help change life? By just living this Christian life, by doing things that are honorable, doing things that are pleasing, doing things that are most worthy, it's helping you to change a life. You know, so and I just to think that we encounter people on a, on a day to day on a day to day basis, and how many people's lives are we being influenced by, and it goes the other direction also. How many people are influencing our life that we be? Do we be people that are angry, that are bitter and resentful? Do it makes us angry and bitter and resentful? Are we meeting people that are loving and caring and and courteous? and concerned about our needs and in turn allows us to be the same. You know, as we go through life, we want to be mindful that there's nothing new under the sun. We want to be mindful that we can make a difference. We want to be mindful that we are valuable to the world and society as a whole. And and as I think about black history and this time of year and throughout the year, I am encouraged about the men and women that went before me, that that made a way when I couldn't make a way, and that that did some things that that beyond my understanding, but they did it, and they did it not only for me but for you also. We're gonna go ahead and continue the show here. You, the calling number is three one zero nine eight two forty one twenty six. Uh, that's the calling number. You two can call in and be a part of the program here. We're happy to be. Uh, be able to broadcast with you this morning here, and we are uh, we're dedicating this show and the remainder of the month to our Black History patriarch. So we have we have an upcoming clip here from Martin Luther King, and he's going to be speaking on the three evils of society. The three evils of society. This was dated uh, back some time ago, but the, he was talking about uh, the the three evils is the uh, uh, it is an amazing speech that uh, which looks at the miracle three deadliest sins, war, racism, and poverty. So the next voice you'll hear Dr. Martin Luther King speaking on the three evils of society. Be back with you shortly. Mr. Chairman, friends and brothers in this first gathering, of the National Conference on New Politics. Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me in the back? I don't know if the Klan is in here tonight or not with all the trouble we're having with these microphones. And seldom, if ever, as we're still working with it. 
As I was about to say, seldom if ever has such a diverse and uh, truly ecumenical gathering convened under the aegis of politics in our nation. And I want to commend the leadership of the National Conference on New Politics for all of the great work that they have done in making this significant convention possible. Indeed, by our very nature, we affirm that something new is taking place on the American political horizon. We have come here from the dusty plantations of the Deep South and the depressing ghettos of the North. We have come from the great universities and the flourishing suburbs. We have come from Appalachian poverty and from conscience-stricken wealth. But we have come. And we have come here because we shared a common concern for the moral health of our nation. We have come because our eyes have seen through the superficial glory and glitter of our society and observed the coming of judgment like the prophet of old. We have read the handwriting on the wall. We have seen our nation weighed in the balance of history and found wanting. We have come because we see this as a dark hour in the affairs of men. For most of us, this is a new move. We are traditionally the idealists. We are the marchers from Mississippi and Selma and Washington who staked our lives on the American dream during the first half of this decade. Many assembled here campaigned deciduously for Lyndon Johnson in 1964 because we could not stand idly by and watch our nation contaminated by the 18th century policies of Goldwaterism. We were the hardcore activists who were willing to believe that Southerners could be reconstructed in the constitutional image. We were the dreamers of a dream that dark yesterdays of man's inhumanity to man would soon be transformed into bright tomorrows of justice. Now it is hard to escape the disillusionment of betrayal. Our hopes have been blasted and our dreams have been shattered. The promise of a great society was shipwrecked off the coast of Asia on the dreadful peninsula to Vietnam, the poor black and white, the poor black and white are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. What happens to a dream deferred? It leads to bewildering frustration and corroding bitterness. I came to see this in a personal experience here in Chicago last summer. And all the speaking that I have done in the United States before varied audiences, including some hostile whites, the only time that I have ever been booed was one night in our regular weekly mass meeting by some angry young men of our movement. I went home that night with an ugly feeling. Selfishly, I thought of my sufferings and sacrifices over the last 12 years. Why would they boo one so close to them? But as I lay awake thinking, I finally came to myself, and I could not for the life of me have less than patience and understanding for those young men. For 
12 years, I and others like me have held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not too distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. This situation is all the more ominous in view of the rising expectations of men the world over. The deep rumblings that we hear today, the rumbling of discontent, is the thunder of disinherited masses rising from dungeons of oppression to the bright hills of freedom. All over the world, like a fever, freedom is spreading in the widest liberation movement in history. The great masses of people are determined to end the exploitation of their races and lands. And in one majestic chorus, they are singing in the words of our freedom song, ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. So the collision course is set. The people cry for freedom, and the Congress attempts to legislate repression. Millions, yes, billions, are appropriated for mass murder. But the most meager pittance of foreign aid for international development is crushed in the surge of reaction. Unemployment rages at a major depression level in the black ghettos, but the bipartisan response is an anti-riot bill rather than a serious poverty program. The modest proposals for model cities rent supplement and right control, pitiful as they were to begin with, get caught in the maze of congressional inaction. And I submit to you tonight that a Congress that proves to be more anti-Negro than anti-rat needs to be dismissed.
to aid 1,000 young men and women who have been pushed out of overcrowded ghetto schools and obtaining basic, basically literacy skills prerequisite to receiving jobs. We had an agreement with A&P stores for 750 jobs through FCLC's job program, Operation Breadbasket, and had recruited over 500 pupils the first week. At that point, Congressman Kuczynski and the Daily Machine intervened and demanded that Washington cut off our funds or channel them through the machine-controlled poverty program in Chicago. Now we have no problem with administrative supervision, but we do have a desire to be independent of machine control and the Democratic Party patronage network. For this desire for a politically independent approach to the needs of our brothers, our funds are being stopped as of September 15th, and a very meaningful program discontinued. Yes, the hour is dark. Evil comes forth in the guise of good. It is a time of double talk when men in high places have a high blood pressure of deceptive rhetoric and an anemia of concrete performance. We crowd against welfare handouts to the poor but generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Six Mississippi plantations receive more than a million dollars a year not to plant cotton, but no provision is made to feed the tenant farmer who is put out of work by the government subsidy. hypocrisy must go to those staunch Republicans and Democrats of the Midwest and West who were given land by our government when they came here as immigrants from Europe. They were given education through the land-grant colleges. They were provided with agricultural agents to keep them abreast of farming trends. They were granted low-interest loans to aid in the mechanization of their farms. And now that they have succeeded in becoming successful, they are paid not to farm. And these are the same people who now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate a bread to eat, that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What, what they truly advocate is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor.
D.B. Du Bois prophesied that the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Now as we stand two-thirds into this crucial period of history, we know full well that racism is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells, a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice, to be at once attracted to the Negro and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. There has never been a solid unified and determined thrust to make justice a reality for Afro-Americans. The step backward has a new name today. It is called the white backlash. But the white backlash is nothing new. It is the surfacing of old prejudices, hostilities, and ambivalences that have always been there. It was caused neither, it was caused neither by the cry of black power, nor by the unfortunate re recent wave of riots in our cities. The white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. This does not imply that all white Americans are racist. Far from it, many white people have, through a deep moral compulsion, fought long and hard for racial justice. Nor does it mean that America has made no progress in her attempt to cure the body politic of the disease of racism, or that the dogma of racism has not been considerably modified in recent years. However, for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country, even today, is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. Racism can well be that corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. Arnold Tornbe has said that some 26 civilizations have risen upon the face of the earth. Almost all of them have descended into the junk heaps of destruction. The decline and fall of these civilizations, according to Tornbe, was not caused by external invasions, but by internal decay. They failed to respond creatively to the challenges impinging upon them. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. Mm. Oh, what an amazing speech that was from Dr. Martin Luther King there. That is a, a speech where it takes a look at the three deadliest sins in America, war, racism, and poverty. You'll listen to Free on the Inside, uh, Minister Joel Lewis and Brother Richard Daniels on the line here. Brother Daniel. Hey, how you doing? What's up? Oh, man, what an amazing speech that was Dr. Martin Luther King there, man. Oh man! You know what he was talking about? Some things that's a, that's that's prevalent today. You know mm. he was talking about some things that today. You know he's. As, as I just I, when I listened to him, man, I was thinking about being a prophet, man. 
You know, that happened mm-hmm. was many years ago, but we're still facing the same things today. And racism, poverty is pulling the country apart. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, you know, awesome. you know, there was an old saying, biblical saying one day, I think King Solomon said, nothing new up under the sun. Almost everything that's happened, you know, before is steady, steady happening again, you know. It's just not changing. Just, they just put another picture in, another image you see, but it's the same reaction, the same uh, the same problem. You just dress it up a little bit better. Oh, that is so true. That is so, and, you know, it let us know that the battle is not over yet, man. We need to continually to fight for our rights. We need to continue to put things in place. We need to continue to vote, to get uh, elected officials and be involved in government and civic affairs. We need to be well-informed. We need to educate ourselves, and we need to go beyond our own comfort zone, you know. That was a time, you know, we grew up in South Dallas, man, and everything in South Dallas was black, you know. We had the stores, the laundry mats, we had the gaming halls, you know, and everything was there. You know, we, we had a little culture, a little society right in there, and as the and, – and as the uh, – generation before us got older and not able to uh, do the things that they had set in place. The younger generation, which was their kids and their grandkids, they didn't take up, they didn't take that up like some of the stores wasn't passed down to the next generation. The laundry mats wasn't passed down. And in the liquor store, all those things just, you know, fell into decay. And that's some of the things that Martin Luther King was speaking about. How we should just take, mm. you know, uh, take ownership of some of these things, you know, and how, uh, you know, how people have, they have, I, I like to put it like this, people have, uh, it, uh, they have great intentions for you as a society, but their intentions aren't great for you. You know what I'm saying? Mm. You know, we think that you ought to do this and this, but it ain't good for you to do this and that, you know? Well, you know, I just put it simple. It's just like welfare. Welfare was a good thing, you know, uh, government assistance. But sometimes government assistance is separated families because they tell the woman, "Hey, well, we taking care of you and little Johnny and little Mary and little and little Wayne. But if you get a husband or you get a married or a mate, we gonna cut back on your uh, on your resources. So your best option is to not to have anybody." And we'll take care of little Bobby, little Mary, and little Wayne if you don't bring a man in the house. And that separates hmm. the family. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So you got yeah. a whole segment of, of women living, uh, the uh, uh, you know, they're the single parent only because they're forced into it because of the economic condition and the and the heartless of their heart towards a man that have male walked out on them or bailed. Uh, abuse them uh, at I, one time, and anybody shouldn't be in an abusive situation. But it's just the idea that society they have good intentions, but their intentions wasn't good for us as a society. Cause it allowed well, a lot I of us go, to grow up as a single parent. I, I can go back. I can go back even deeper than that. Uh, you remember back in the days when uh, the black man uh, he couldn't he couldn't really do anything. He couldn't say a put up. A white curved person could basically come inside his house and take over. So what happened was basically, the, you know, what happened was the black man didn't have any kind of he didn't have any kind of authority. So basically, what he did mostly he ran off. He abandoned his his his, uh, his his manly duties being around the house because he didn't have any kind of authority over his house. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. So this 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 uh, single parent issue was around, but at the same time it wasn't around because basically the black women family had to unite and get together. Well, through the years, uh, and I think it was around about in the early '60s, they had this movement about. Uh, free love and be yourself and you free. And basically, it's during the 1970s when everything started to change. And what happened was uh, they didn't want to live up to your responsibilities. 
you know. And so what happened was people started uh, splitting up. The families, women started saying that they basically could do stuff on their own. They didn't need a man, and, and we could we could do this by ourselves, you know. And 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 it was mostly families without a manly authority. Yeah, and and and, 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 and she was yeah. saying that there's nothing wrong with the women who can do that. They could, you know, they brought up, you know, I'm from a single parent home. You know, my mother did the best she could. But I'm just thinking about it alone mm-hmm. as I grew up and got to uh, aware of things around me, and I didn't, I wanted to know. Uh, and you know, we growing up, we always, we men, we thought about it, but we didn't ever dwell on it. Why you don't have a daddy? You got a daddy comes around every so often, and then as we grew up and learned these things of society, we realized that sometimes these things wasn't because of uh, the man's fault. And so it wasn't a woman's fault. It was society. It was a, it was a society right. in the hand that we were dealt in, you know, because mom needed to make mm-hmm. it. And dad was only, you know, he was just, a, what, working downtown, maybe shop, what, shining shoes or parking cars or, you know, a, a bus boy somewhere. Mm-hmm. He really didn't, couldn't yeah, afford, yeah, yeah. you know, to take care of his family. Thing. He couldn't That's afford it. Thing, uh, Revolution. I was talking to this guy on my job, and I told him that uh, most of all the buildings downtown, back in the early, I believe in the early late fifties and the early sixties, most of all those buildings downtown were built by black men because yeah. we basically the only jobs we could get were construction jobs. Well, yeah, and they didn't pay very much, but you know you had a job, yeah. you know. Yeah, you're making thirty five cents an hour, you know. You you take home enough money, and you got a, uh, a you know a mouth to feed and utilities and mortgage and stuff of that nature. And unless you got an education, you would be living in that in, you know in that uh, in, in that poverty. Mm-hmm. Unless you got an education, you'll be living like that. So yeah, you're right. And I remember I had uncles and cousins that was uh they was maids and they was uh. Uh, parking lot attendants, you know, and those were the mm-hmm. jobs. They used to tell me, "Son, get a, get an education." You know, they wouldn't tell me the va- they wouldn't tell me why, but they said get an education. And and uh, yeah. one summer I went to work with my dad. You know, uh, he was working construction, and I was out there. I was cleaning up the construction site. You know, where the people with all the scrap and stuff, I would take them over and put them in the trash can or put them in a pile or something. And I realized why my dad did not encourage me to work with him because that job was very physical. That job was demanding. That job was degrading because they say, hey, boy, everybody's name was boy. boy. From the youngest to the oldest. Hey, yeah. boy, come here, you know. And that's because that's the type of job that that we was, that was available for us at the time. And, and when the, uh, you know, we didn't have the... Uh, uh, the safety net we had on jobs we have now because if you didn't work you didn't get paid. So on the mm-hmm. construction site, if it's raining and and, and 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 bad weather for a week or whatever, you don't get paid. Yeah. And and yeah. the people they loan you some money, they say you could draw, but you know you know how bookkeeping <laughs> is. Sometimes bookkeeping don't work out as well. You end up working uh, free because yeah, money, you, you, you you borrowed all, all this money, money. that you gonna you gonna do in the week. You wouldn't have no money on the end of the week. Yeah, you draw, so he called you, know, you to work yeah. two weeks. He called you to work two weeks for a week's salary. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, you owe me a week worth of money. You know, so he called you to go mm-hmm. out and gamble and do things. So, you know, and Martin Luther King was addressing that too, man. And, 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 you know, and it's amazing, Rick, all the stuff that he talked about is still prevalent today. You know, I can remember my grandmother, you know, she uh, she she did this private homework, you know, and she would go out and uh, you like you see this this story about the the the, the help. Yeah, that's true, man. And all these women would sit on the bus stops in the morning time, man, and talk to each other, and that's the only way they could get to work was on this bus going down Northwest Highway over here. Yeah, uh, basically, I live over here now, and um, they uh. They uh, they talk and 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 uh, but they had this uh, rule that you couldn't be in this neighborhood after a certain time of night. Or they, I, you did uh, t- yeah. You get railroad, you know. You get stopped by the police. And what you doing over, there, girl? And I'm working I remember for Miss Sarah down. Yeah, I work for Miss Sarah. Well, you, you, I better see, come back another hour. You better be gone. <laughs> yeah, you know. 
unless they recognize you. You know, oh yeah, that's one of Miss Sarah girls. Uh, you know, we don't let her yeah. make it. But yeah, and I remember that man when people had them black and white uniforms and the white shoes, and they all sitting at the bus yeah. stop and they all getting on the bus, getting off the bus, and the guys got their lung care, uh, uh, you know, uh, they uh, lung uh, dress on. You know, where they were guarding. Had on mm-hmm. the, you could tell a person where they worked at. Some worked in the kitchen, and some was a house. Worked in the house as butlers and maids, and some worked out in the yard mm-hmm. and landscapers yeah. and uh, uh, you know and people of that nature. So, man, but yeah. uh, I know Ricky. You know, as we think about things like that, you know, we, it's still a lot of work for us to do as as a, as a society, man. Man, we really ready to get on out of here. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We are gonna pick this up again next week, and Lord willing, we gonna continue with our Black History. We gonna uh, bring on a couple of uh, uh, documentaries regarding Black History. It's a little known facts about Black History, and it's always good to go back over that, you know, to just kind of refresh our own mindset on some things like that. But uh, hopefully, yeah. you have a. Uh, you, uh, I would like for you to get us a poem for next uh, uh, for next setting, if possible. Well, but I got one today. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, you got me one? Yeah. All right, well, go for it. Okay. This is a car- this is a poem called, uh, let's see, Black of the Color. As I was okay. looking for a poem to show my pride, I saw some things that make my skin want to hide. They take the proud color black and turn into lies with the junk that fill our people's minds. Black is the color of blindness in which my dark skin seems. Black is the color of darkness in which it might not see. Black is the color of a black sucking crow, and it is the color most people don't know. Black is the color of an evil panther. And that's the color of my ancestors. Black is the color of coal, a substance that works as much as gold. Black is the color of night. In it, I see the stars too bright. Black is the color of power. Black is the color in my desire. Black is the color to set us free. Black is the color of my beauty. Black is the color of my skin. And black is the color of the world that I believe in. Black is the color that gets you down. Black is the color that makes me proud. This is a poem by Medea Comfrey. Yeah, black is a color, man, and most of these people, is, it's very underestimated, and it's very, you know, and I remember Mohammed Ali, I always say, man, why come they call it black male? Why come they call it a black, you know what I'm saying? Everything black was mostly seen to be bad. You know? uh, yeah. It's so true. That's a beautiful point, man. We're about ready to get on out of here. We're going to close out with a, uh, another edition of uh, Stevie Wonder here of uh, uh, Black History's song. Salute to all the black inventors. And afterwards, we, uh, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll close out with a song from Stevie Wonder. Gracious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time of reflection. How we just reminiscing on how far you have brought us as a black race. How we reflecting and reminiscing on the men and women that went before us, dear Lord, those inventors and those uh, architects and those designers and those homemakers and, and those butlers and all those people, dear Lord, that makes up what we are today, dear Lord. We thank you for our parents and grandparents, dear Lord, how they made themselves available, dear Lord, so we could have a proper education, dear Lord, how they went and cleaned someone's house, how they drove people around, how they took care of people, kids, dear Lord, so we didn't have to do those things. We thank you, dear Lord. We didn't experience some of those things, dear Lord, just by uh, uh, just by looking and seeing how, how mom had to go when she didn't feel well and how dad had to go in spite of what the, uh, what the job did to him, dear Lord. We thank you for that, dear Lord. Let us be the people in which you call for such a time. Let us be mindful, dear Lord, that it's it's much work to be done. We thank you for Brother Ricky. We thank you, dear Lord, for his commitment to this show, dear Lord. We pray for all our guests. The phone line, dear Lord, we thank you for calling in to the program, Free on the Inside. We thank you for your willingness to, to be free on the inside. We pray this in the name of Jesus, dear Lord, that this day here we honor you with everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 